CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Today on an all-new Political Rewind, our panel weighs in on the extraordinary events that have played out with lightning speed in Washington this week. House Democrats are hurtling toward the probable impeachment of President Trump. Plus the latest on Georgia's two U.S. Senate races and more. Political Rewind starts now. Hello and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. All I can say is what a week. In a matter of essentially three days, the Democrats in the U.S. House went from a wait-and-see attitude about whether or not to launch a formal impeachment investigation of President Trump to being flat-out in favor of gathering the information, the evidence they say they need. And I think, and I'll ask the panel this, there's very little question that once they give, gather all of their evidence, they have every intention of going ahead and trying to impeach President Trump. I'll ask the panel if that, in fact, is the case. And we'll talk a bit about how Georgia is involved in all of this. Joining uh, us today, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, always a pleasure to have you here. You're not only following all the impeachment details, but you're also looking at how Georgia congressional uh, members of the congressional delegation are responding to it. And we'll exactly. Give you and, and candidates. And uh, candidates as well. And we'll talk about that. Um, Amy Steigerwald is a polit That's Jackie Cushman. Let's go to her first. Jackie Gingrich Cushman is um, a syndicated columnist, a conservative blogger. I read her at JackieCushman.com. Uh, you can also read her. On, I always forget where else. On Town Hall. Town Hall. Occasionally, the AJC has been running me this, this month. Oh, I've been very right. happy about that. So. And, and. Hello. You have a brand new book out, which we did a show on, which is online right now for people who want to see it. it. Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. I don't think there could be better time <laughs> than uh, right now, Jackie. Absolutely. Less, a little less ranting, a little more listening is what I'm calling for. <laughs> All right. So again, that show is on our Political Rewind uh, website if you'd like to uh, look at it. Now, Amy Steigerwald, she is a professor of uh, political science at Georgia State University and a frequent panelist on this show. We love having you on, Amy, because you can not only talk about the politics of all this, but you've also got a legal perspective that I'll, I'll look forward to hearing about at some point during this show and shows moving forward. Welcome. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Stacey Evans is with us as well. She's a former state representative and a Democrat and uh, ran for governor in the primaries against uh, Stacey Abrams and is now practicing law at Wargo French. Correct. Yes. Thank you for being here. My All pleasure. right, let's do this. Um, Greg and Amy, I'm going to give each, Stacy and uh, Jackie, just a couple of minutes here. I'm always, you know, we always value having the smartest, most respectful conversations we can. And I think in the weeks ahead, it's going to be interesting to see if we're able to maintain that. This is such an explosive issue. Um, so, Jackie, let me just give you, if I might, a minute, minute and a half, whatever, my guess is that you are leaning toward not thinking this impeachment ought to go forward. And I want to give you a couple of minutes to just say how you're feeling about this. Oh, I think um, Speaker Pelosi should do whatever she feels like she should do, quite frankly. So it's not up to me, obviously. It's up to Speaker Pelosi. Um, I think it was interesting that she went ahead and announced they were moving into this inquiry before she actually received the transcript of the call or the allegations from the supposed whistleblower. So she did it based on kind of reports of what might have happened but hadn't actually seen anything. And then the next few days, you actually see facts and documents come out. So it's almost as if she started the Inquisition before she actually got the information. Um, and we'll talk about later what I think will happen. Um, but as we all know, first you go to the, the Congress has to, representatives have to impeach, provide articles of impeachment. And then it has to go to the Senate for the actual trial of the mm -hmm. impeachment. Um, and then I, I think it's going to be very fascinating to watch. And my rec recommendation is that we all slow down, take a breath, and really not only try to t discuss our perspective, but also understand what's driving the other side. So, Stacey Evans, want to weigh in? Absolutely. And first, though, in, a, in, a, in the spirit of bipartisanship, I would like to endorse the theme of Jackie's book, 
let's stop ranting and start <laughs> listening. And how about, in addition to listening, let's just start talking to each other. Let's be in the same room. Mm -hmm. uh, that is happening less and less. Crazy week. Um, the whistleblower report comes out. There's no choice for Democrats but to look into this. I think it's premature to start drafting articles of impeachment because while the allegations are extremely troubling at this point, they are just that, allegations, and we've got to have evidence before we get to the um, impeachment articles. I will say, based on what I'm hearing and based on how much um, information the whistleblower put in the report, talking about at least six or more than six people giving uh, similar information that led to the report, makes me believe we will get there. Um, but let's get there. Um, I also would endorse um, Nancy Pelosi's feelings that she's been um, talking about on her uh, various uh, appearances. This is not a happy thing. Um, and for the Democrats out there that are being a little bit gleeful about it, they need to check their attitudes because this is sad. Uh, this is not a position that anybody who loves this country wants to be in, and we need to remember that. So we need to follow. We need to follow the evidence. Uh, we need to have more information than this memo. Yeah. Um, there's a leap season there that I would like to know. What are those dot 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 standing for? There's well, more we need to know. Okay. So a Amy Steigerwald, let's pick up on something that each of them said. Uh, first, Amy, um, you know when Stacey Evans uh, talks about uh, the fact that this memo has a lot of information, it it, it is this is secondhand. Mm -hmm. In the in the second paragraph or so, I think of the mm -hmm. whistleblower report. He or she says this is all secondhand information. Yes. But here's where I think people have to be careful. No one is suggesting that the memo itself is evidence that could then be used in a trial of President Trump. This creates a roadmap. Right. That would need to be pursued by presumably the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, and perhaps uh, the Judiciary Committee. So people should not mistake this as being the evidence needed to move forward. No, that's exactly right. So, I mean, what we have is someone who was working in the government following the procedure that's laid out in the statute, that they are to bring the complaint to the inspector general of the intelligence communities. And the job of the inspector general is to say, OK, here are allegations allegations. Do the allegations seem to be credible? And the other term that gets bandied around is of an urgent nature. And that is what he determined, that they were credible in the sense that they are coming from someone who uh, we have reason to believe what this person is reporting and that they believe it to be truthful and that it suggests that there's something that needs to be looked into further. And so that was really the determination and then descended over, it is now finally, right, gotten over to the various intelligence committees to say, Okay, here is something that should be looked into just like the start of any type of police investigation. Yeah, it may be a roadmap for the people you want to call as witnesses uh, exactly. if you're in either, any of the Democratic-controlled committees. Um, Greg, Jackie said something uh, that I thought was important. She said, and, and this has been commented on, but it's important, that this, this thing snowballed, and the Georgia Dulloch Democrats were very much a part of this, before anybody saw anything. Mm -hmm. uh, there were stories about what this memo was supposed to show. There were stories about what happened on the phone call between uh, President Zelensky and President Trump. But why suddenly did this thing snowball as it did? Democrats in our delegation who weren't willing to commit themselves, they jumped in before they saw anything. And remember, long before this, there was already more than 80 House Democrats mm -hmm. who were willing to go forward mm -hmm. with some sort of impeachment proceedings based on the Mueller report and other allegations already. So there was a tremendous amount of pressure. And yet, the five House Democrats, including two very outspoken critics of President Trump, Trump, Hank Johnson and John Lewis, um, you know, John Lewis didn't even go to his, his inauguration, right? Um, that's how much he opposed him, but still were willing to hold the line on impeachment, um, you know, deferring in a way to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who really thought it would be too divisive for some of the frontline Democrats in vulnerable districts. Uh, this, this changed everything. Once you had allegations of, of, of President Trump asking Ukrainians, uh, Ukraine's president to look into mm -hmm. Joe Biden and to interfere with the election, they said, and especially John Lewis in a stirring, in a, in a very uh, watershed type moment, said that this was a bridge too far. Jackie, it was somewhat risky. For, for, for the Democrats oh, to I think, I think jump in with both feet before they I saw I think it still is very risky, to be honest. Okay. I, think it's very, I think it's very risky, I think, to, to go out and say you're going to, you know, 
um, go investigate something when you really ha haven't received any information. It's all allegations and, you know. And then what I ask everyone to do is go look at the, the call. Go look at the call and what President Trump actually said. Well, let's be careful because the call is a summary. It is not it's, a transcript. It's an, it's an, it's an electronic, uh, and I'm sure Amy can, can tell me exactly <laughs> what it is, but it's the way they actually, tra you know, transcribe it in terms of this is the, this is the, result, the record of the call. Okay, I think there's going to be a lot clearly, of argument as whether it was absolutely, a transcription. But, but, but I would, regardless of what you call it, go read it. Go read it. Don't listen to reports about it. Don't listen to reporters talk about it. Don't talk about, don't listen to me talk about it. Go <laughs> and read the actual conversation between the two because it's interesting and, you know, I can, I can go into details longer. It's interesting because they were actually talking about corruption in Ukraine. And this is how the president won. I mean, the president of Ukraine won because he was anti-corruption in Ukraine. And so Trump actually asked him first, do me a favor, look at, look into this stuff with the 2016, look at the crowd strike and see what happened. We, we heard something might be happening over there. Go check on corruption. And then later on, they, he mentions, and go check into more corruption. And so all he's saying is, I know you're a person that cares about corruption. You were voted there because of corruption. Go check out corruption and see what's there. See, I think this is interesting, uh, uh, Stacey, because uh, this is exactly where Republicans are going to go. This is how they're going to proceed on this. In fact, uh, the president, President Trump, does mention Joe and Hunter Biden uh, to the president of Ukraine in in the summary of the conversation. And then when we saw the whistleblower report itself, we saw other examples of what Democrats are going to allege are examples of the influence that President Trump was trying to exert to get dirt on the Bidens. Probably the most surprising thing, I think it's fair to say, although I welcome all of you to weigh in, was the fact that Vice President Pence was told not to attend Zelensky's inauguration mm -hmm. after he'd been committed to go. And Trump essentially, according to the whistleblower, said, uh, we need to know more about where this guy stands. So the, the, the phone call is one piece of this. Mm -hmm. And it's what we're going to see unfold, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and it's important. When I use the word memo, I'm talking about what a lot of people in the media have been calling the transcript. Because it's not a transcript. Mm -hmm. It's a summary. It's, it's a memo. And the whistleblower report is the whistleblower report. But I will agree with one thing Jackie said, is that the way that the memo of the call is being um, reported is it's a little bit different than if you read it. But the one thing that is important is that where the ellipses are in this summary, in this, in this memo, and it's right after President Trump starts talking about uh, CrowdStrike and we really need you to look into this. And those are very crucial ellipses. I've been surprised that the media hasn't hooked on more to the fact, and I, th I think folks are not talking about enough, that what he actually starts talking about, what the president, President Trump starts talking about first when he's asking for a favor, is stuff that happened in the 2016 election. He's talking mm -hmm. about essentially Hillary Clinton information. CrowdStrike mm -hmm. was the firm yeah. that was hired mm -hmm. to research how the DNC's uh, uh, systems were hacked, right? Do I have that correct? Absolutely. But, but what, let's, let's think about this, though. Certainly we need more information, and I said that from the beginning. But if you look at Trump's behavior, it's very telling. The first thing that he does is start attacking the whistleblower and attacking the people who told the whistleblower things. Isn't not that saying, natural? Not saying that it's wrong. He's just saying, who told? He's not saying, why did, this, why did somebody inside my uh, White House tell the wrong thing? He's saying, why did they tell? And then but you hear the Republicans. Let me, let me just finish. Right. This is important. The Republicans were talking a lot about hearsay. And you, you touched on that a little bit. I'm probably the only one at the table, I think, that's actually represented whistleblowers. And I can tell you that whistleblower complaints usually start as hearsay because the people that maybe said the things they shouldn't have said, they're not going to come forward and talk about it. If you see something, say something. That's what this whistleblower did. And we can eventually get direct testimony from those folks, but that's how you start. So this idea that, oh, we shouldn't pay attention to this because it's secondhand knowledge, it's hearsay, that's malarkey, but, as but, Biden okay. would say. So, so, Greg, should we really expect anything less from the president who is under attack now? Uh, maybe for good reason. Maybe we'll see how that plays out. I mean, certainly when Richard Nixon was impeached, he put up a fierce defense, accused the Democrats of, of trying to uh, uh, push him out of office. Bill Clinton, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I mean, I, I'm a little... I, I, it, it strikes me that um, we're making... The media is making a lot about Trump's fiercely defending himself now. 
he may have gone too far in saying this is treasonous behavior. Yeah, and look, it's the same sort of uh, behavior pattern he, he showed doing the Mueller report, too. No, witch hunt, yeah. no collusion, witch yeah. hunt, no collusion. He's been tweeting up a, a storm pretty much every day. Um, he's also corroborating, before this report came out, he also corroborated some details for the media um, himself, like that he, the fact that he had spoken to the Ukrainian president. Yeah. You know, he went on the record before we had the, you mm -hmm. know, the full details to say some of that. So that's been important, too, to help, to help kind of give us some more information about what is it. So it, that leads to me those two questions. There's two questions that run in parallel. One is why Nancy Pelosi decided now was the moment, mm -hmm. um, which you've all talked about. The second... Um, why did uh, the insiders in the White House, apparently enough to convince the president to move, why did they release the summary of the phone call? And then why did they say, yeah, we'll declassify the whistleblower memo and put that out there as well? There are a lot of people apparently in the White House who think that was a bad move. What, what's your take on that? It is difficult at times to discern strategically what is always going on uh, in the White House. And I think that this is a good instance where I'm not sure that I think it was in many ways a response of the president. I think he said, mm -hmm. I don't see a problem with the transcript. So let's just release it. What's the problem here? You all are suggesting that there's some concern in releasing it. Mm -hmm. I think we should just go ahead with that. And so I think that that's a lot that is within it. And a similar thing, the whistleblower complaint one is a little bit more difficult. I mean, at least when the uh, acting director of the National Intelligence Agency was testifying, his comment was that it was always going to get to the the House and get to the mm -hmm. Senate. It was just a question of when. He said it was because there was this question of exactly where executive privilege was, but it was a delay, not a refusal to turn it over. I think the other thing with Nancy Pelosi and sort of trying to discern what's going on, the commentary that has been said by a lot of Democrats is that one of the things about this instance and the, the allegations here is that it's an easier one to understand that for people that this is, it sort of pushed it over because it also, it's pretty simple, mm -hmm. right? It's this question of people understand the idea of quid pro quo. They understand the idea of pressuring people in a way that perhaps was more difficult for people to follow uh, after reading the Mueller report. You're right, I mean, the whistleblower report, uh, the, the, I mean, this whole whistleblower complaint has got more traction in a few days than the Mueller report had in years. Yeah. And, and that's astounding to me. Yeah. I, let me, Jackie, I, I, let, let me throw something out to you and then please say what you want. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if both Pelosi and President Trump and those who wanted him to release all this were not in fact, um, Pelosi finally, it, the seven freshmen mm -hmm. who wrote an op-ed piece last Sunday in the Washington Post saying the time is now. These are all people with either military or uh, intelligence backgrounds uh, making a very uh, forceful argument that it was time to go. It strikes me that Nancy Pelosi finally realized she had to give in to the growing momentum of her own caucus. Similarly, mm -hmm. I wonder if releasing the, the summary of the phone conversation and the whistleblower report was not President Trump's... Uh, I wonder if there were people saying to President Trump, this is serious, it's, it's, it could be bad, you've got to hold your own Republicans in line, and you could start getting some pushback from people if they think you're stonewalling on this. I mean, that's pure theory, but I wonder... So let's back up to, um, to Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. And I, I, I think you're exactly right. I think Speaker Pelosi has tried very hard to hold the line about um, impeachment because uh, she's, she's very smart. She's a great fundraiser. She's been trying to keep that caucus together, and she's had a tough time. And finally, quite, fr quite frankly, I think she said, I'm just going to have to go. I think, unfortunately for her, she did that before she actually had information in her, in her hands that came out in the next two days. So I think there is a timing issue. Quite frankly, I mean, President Trump, ever since he's been elected, when the next day people woke up and, you know, couldn't go to class or couldn't think about it or needed to call in sick, I mean, we have had Democrats trying to impeach him for one thing or another or to build a case. So, and even, so I think we need to be very careful. Is this actually something that happened that leads to the legal, right? Is there actually a legal case for this? Or is this some, a group that's saying, we hate him, we want him out, and we're going to find something to get him out? Well, that's what we're going to see. I mean, as, as the investigation, as, if they follow the trail, Stacey, of the whistleblower's um, memo and, it, and find the people who 
he says we're nervous, we're worried about the conversation. We're going to see this all play out, most of it in public. Absolutely. Well, well, here you have a whistleblower who's part of the intelligence community relying on information from folks within the White House. You're not talking about an angry mob of Democrats coming for the president. You're talking about folks inside the Democrat, I mean, the uh, Republican and Trump circles. So, and you also start with a whistleblower who was found to be credible by the inspector general and the director of um, national intelligence. So we're, we're talking about a very credible whistleblower and a very credible and well-supported uh, group of allegations. And so uh, the Democrats are well on their way to articles of impeachment. I All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And, and when we come back, I want to look at this in a slight, I want to look, sort of put this in a historical perspective with all of you and get your take on, on that. Uh, right now, let's go to a break. We'll have more of Political Rewind in a moment. Everybody okay? Isn't North Korea already posing an unacceptable threat? As this regime continues to, to perfect its long-range nuclear capabilities, it's just a risk that the world cannot tolerate. One out of every four times a fire truck leaves the station, it's for an overdose case. So this House bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. If that is the only bill in town, that means we will have a shutdown. A Seat at the Table is a weekly series hosted by Deneen Milner, Christine White, and Monica Pearson. The mission of A Seat at the Table is to let African-American women have a platform to educate communities about the black women's experience, life, and journey. Today, we're talking about using the N-word. Is a college education still necessary in today's world? Today, we're talking about what it means to be woke. From credit to entrepreneurship, black women are about our business. Join us for A Seat at the Table on GPD. Greg Bluestein, uh, an ongoing debate from certainly before this week, uh, this accelerated week of activity, uh, has been if Democrats launch a formal impeachment of the president and decide to bring articles of impeachment, will it help or hurt their chances in the 2020 election cycle, right? And that is still got David Brooks in The New York Times at the end of this week had a column saying Democrats are right that this is a corrupt president, Brooks thinks, uh, but they're wrong about impeachment. And he lays out all the reasons it's going to hurt him in 2020. It's been a big issue. Yeah, we know it will reframe the debate around 2020, if not completely around impeachment, but uh, to a large degree around impeachment. And you're seeing um, Democrats in these competitive districts, like Lucy McBath is ground zero for that, right? I mean, she, mm -hmm. she represents a, a district that was once so Republican that Democrats didn't even bother to challenge it. Yeah. She, she defeats Karen Handel last year, and she's been really, really um, you know, iffy about impeachment even long before this. I was at a town hall meeting with her not so long ago, and about half the crowd wanted her to be full bore, go for impeachment, and the other half was very concerned about it, and polls show the same thing. Um, you know, a, a big, uh, back then, we haven't seen recent polling, but about 60% of residents of the 6th District, Democrats and Republicans, were concerned about impeachment. And so she'll be right there in the middle of that. So how does that play out? You've All of the members of the delegation, save perhaps for Lucy McBath, who's played, been a little more equivocal yes. in her comments about this, have now said, yes, we need to move forward. So that's fine for Hank Johnson and John Lewis. They're Lewis. safe. Yeah. But what about a David Scott, who often is uh, willing to take up Republican positions in the House, who's got a str at least one strong challenger in Michael Owens, used to be a panelist on this show. Uh, it was a little bit, perhaps, he had to do this, didn't he? Or face real approbation Probably. from... I mean, if you ask, candidates. Yeah, if you ask a Republican Senator David Perdue, who his best, his closest ally on, uh, across the aisle is in the Capitol, and it's David Scott. So this this was an interesting position for David Scott to, to, to take. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, our Washington correspondent, and I were conversing before all this, and and we both said, ah, we don't know if David Scott will do it. And then he did. Yeah. And he and it shows you the 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 interesting dilemma that Democrats are in too if they don't take this position and they have a primary challenger because because Michael Owens was out in April calling for impeachment. Yeah. Uh, Amy, we're all so focused on how suburban women are going to vote in 2020. Um, and, and the conventional wisdom has been that up there in the 6th and 7th district, mm -hmm. uh, we think that, did I say Republican women? I should have said independent suburban women. Uh, I, I think 
the question, we've all said they're the key to the election. So we're going to be watching very carefully to see how the impeachment plays with all of, with that voting group. As Bluestein says, so far the polling has shown that the American people really are not enthusiastic mm-hmm. about impeachment, although the numbers have started to move today. I was going to say, at the, at the end of the week, we saw a bit of a shift in the numbers. It's now actually 49% in favor. Um, and what I found most notable about the numbers was that the shift in favor was not simply among Democrats and independents. It was also among Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so they had about a nine-point shift uh, in favor. It was obviously a, a larger shift for the Democrats. So I think some of it is also there has been a view that People are against it, therefore we shouldn't do it. Um, the historical record suggests, so similarly, right, when Nixon, uh, when the allegations were first brought forward, it was not, in fact, strong support to remove him from office. By the time he did resign from office, the numbers were overwhelmingly in support of that. And so I think there is a lot of play here as information comes out and as these issues are dealt with um, to look at it, because certainly why would people be in favor yeah, right now if I, they haven't seen information? I, you know, Stacey, I, I think that's right. In some ways, this reminds me of the fantasy matchups that we have if right. President Trump, if he faces mm-hmm. so-and-so who will win. Those are fantasy matchups. Mm-hmm. They're meaningless mm-hmm. until the the, uh, uh, the, the campaigns are, are joined, the race is joined. And in some ways, the early numbers on impeachment are like that, too. Before it became real, mm-hmm. it's one thing. But now that it's real, the numbers do seem to be moving a bit. It's different. They, the numbers have moved a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's just with the report, essentially the allegations. When we start hearing testimony... I think you're going to likely see those go up even higher. So there's a lot being said, oh, the Democrats are going to shoot themselves in the foot because they're doing this. Well, first of all, they're doing their job. Um, and, and you usually don't get fired for doing your job. But secondly, public opinion is moving with them. And as long as the Democrats can keep doing what they've been doing in the House, which is in addition to investigating the president, which is their duty, they've also been passing measures uh, to address gun control. They've been working on health care proposals. So they're also addressing the issues that Americans and voters care about. It's just that the Senate's not taking them up. And I think you saw Nancy Pelosi this morning hold a press conference to specifically talk about the work they've been doing on health care, gun control, etc. So they're very aware. Nancy Pelosi is very aware and the Democrats are very aware that they've got to walk and chew gum at the same time. So J- Jackie, and they're doing it. I, the only thing I would uh, question here, uh, although Amy's looked at polling that shows this, I can't imagine that uh, uh, Republicans in big numbers are suddenly going to... They're, they are so devoted to President Trump. It'll be interesting to see which demographic of Republican voters may be more inclined to say, yeah, we ought to impeach well, this and, guy. And also, I'd also have to look and say, you know, who are they talking to? Because quite frankly... Um, and I, obviously, I disagree. I think this is a this is an investigation in search of a problem because they hate the president. Uh, and I think a lot of Republicans feel that way, quite frankly, that they're just trying to I mean, they've tried for years to do, you know, Russia. They tried to do this, that and the other. This is the latest thing that we are going to try to find some information because right now it's allegations so that we can find a reason to go and go after Trump. So I think a lot of Republicans are like, let them do that, because quite frankly, they're going to look not so bright at the end. What my concern is, is that if you already see this happening with the Republicans, is that they're so busy attacking the Democrats about this, that they're still, you still have this big middle that no one's really listening to. Um, and so, again, back to my book, Our Broken America, not that I'm trying to chill from my book, but I do <laughs> think, so I mean, I know, I know, no, but I, mean, I do think on both sides, we need to be very careful that before we say, you know, we need to listen to what's happening. And quite frankly, for people who are so determined to hate Trump and want to find reasons to impeach him, I think Republicans should stop and say, why is that? What, what are we not communicating properly? What can we do better? I think we should l- use this as a learning opportunity. All right. Let me, uh, Greg, I want to go back and look at a little history here to see how the impeachments uh, in fairly recent American politics played out in terms of election, electoral politics. So let's go back to Nixon and stick with me on this. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> It, the, it, the break-in at Watergate and the arrest of the five burglars happened in June of 1972. In August of 72, the Washington Post, which, of course, Bernstein and Woodward were in, in driving forward, had the first report that tied the re-election of the president, his campaign, to the break-in. In October, the Washington Post reports an FBI conclusion that uh, the break-in was part of a larger spying operation. So we see... Uh, a case being built for uh, Nixon and his people uh, uh, playing uh, fast and loose in this election process. 
But on November 7th, Richard Nixon wins a landslide. He wins 61% of the vote. He loses only one state. Uh, and, and, and simultaneous to that, Republicans gained 12 new seats in the House and Democrats lost 13 seats. So my conclusion, and we ask you all about this, about that, but then let's keep going. In the 1974 congressional elections, which was after uh, Nixon resigned, mm -hmm. that's when Democrats mm -hmm. won 49 seats and Republicans lost like 48 of them. So mixed results on what the impeachment really was all about. I mean, of course, Nixon was never formally impeached, or, nor was there a trial. He resigned. Yeah, I mean, different data set, but it, but it shows you how these, how these investigations really do shape these races. Mm -hmm. uh, even though there was other debates and there was national security debates that dominated a lot of the policy discussions, um, the American people couldn't get away from the, the, the daily uh, you know, investigative uh, the investigations were on TV. There was daily news about about everything had to do with it revolved around impeachment, and and it looks like we're heading down that road this year too. Amy, you're a numbers cruncher. What do you make of uh, the varying fortunes of Republicans and Democrats around that Nixon F impeachment? Usually, if you've got a president who is doing well and the polling is already up, then if they win re-election, they're also going to bring members of their party with them. Yeah. Uh, when you get to the off election on some level, because 74 was a midterm election, the president in power, his party almost always loses mm -hmm. seats. Uh, during that, it's precisely what we saw. So that's why, you know, even if uh, 2016, right, if we see sort of a decisive victory there, in 2018, we see uh, President Trump losing seats, and that's generally what happens. Happens, mm -hmm. Right. So the expectation is that in 2020, right, particularly if President Trump is to win re-election, that he would stay, uh, that the, the seats would stay pretty stable. And then in 2022, they would probably lose more. And so the issue that's going to come in here is on some level, what happens before 2020? The I guess the difference maybe with the timeline that you laid out is that there's simply more time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 18 months, and so theoretically more of the investigation could be finished, which can have really important consequences then for the election and public opinion. And I think it's notable also that it could have it in both ways, right? So even mm -hmm. though right now we see more people being open, right, in the sort of numbers towards impeachment, it could also be that as more investigations are done, that those numbers also go back the other way. Right. People mm -hmm. say, wait, there really isn't any there right. there, or, and well, so we're not going to follow through. All right, mm -hmm. Jackie, let me take you to an impeachment that has particular significance mm -hmm. in your personal life. Uh, 1998, <laughs> uh, President Clinton is impeached. Uh, in September of uh, 98, Kenneth Starr releases 445-page exhaustive mm -hmm. report, much of which dealt with the president's relationship with Monica Lewinsky. In October 8, on October 8th of 98, the House approved the impeachment inquiry driven by your dad as Speaker of the House, as we know. Um, November 4, 1998, was a really fascinating election because Newt Gingrich, Speaker Gingrich, had predicted that because of the impeachment effort that was underway, it was likely Republicans would pick up as many as 40 seats. Mm -hmm. As you well know, the Republicans not only didn't pick up 40, they, they lost five. And as a result of that, your dad decided not only to give up the speakership, but to resign from Congress. What do you, aside from the personal trauma that must have been in your life, which of course it would have been, what do you take from all of that uh, uh, data. So the first thing I take is be very careful about expectation setting. So, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So remember That's that. A low bar. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe a little lower bar yeah. than 40, 40 seats is a lot. Okay, it's 40 a, seats is a lot. It's the most common wisdom in politics. Yeah, absolutely. Put the room that's, 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 that's smaller a lot. than you think you need. Um, and secondarily, I, I would say that probably that was a little different because if you remember, um, he was actually elected speaker after the the wave, right? The Republican wave. Ninety four. He 90, was responsible. And ninety four with the contract with America. Yeah. Yep. And is actually going to be a special on. Um, because this is the 25th anniversary of the contract with America. And that's very exciting for y'all. Um, so the difference is... No, is that he, was an extraordinary it, moment but the, in American so politics. I'm, trying, I'm setting it up yeah. for a reason. So the reason that was so different is that was all about what we're going to do for you, right? Here are, the, here are some specific things we're going to do for you. We put them in the Reader's Digest. I mean, the Reader's, like the Reading Weekly, so everyone can see it. They voted for them. They went there. They voted on everything in the first 100 days. And then a few years later, 
they're dealing with this. So from my perspective, you have to remember they were used to Republicans actually doing a lot of work in the House, and instead they're doing impeachment, right? Stuff. So it's, it's, I think that was part of the problem, quite frankly. It's reached you doing all the things you said you would do for us, and now you're investigating the president. Secondarily, since we're always looking back, I think it's interesting that a lot of the impeachment about Clinton was about Monica Lewinsky. In today's world, I don't know what would have happened to him, if you can imagine that, right? In, in, a, in, a, in a world in which we have absolutely no tolerance for anything like that. So I think it's a little different to try to put what happened then on today. But what I can tell you is that, um, and that's why Speaker Pelosi is trying to focus on other things they're doing. But when you know for a fact that whatever you vote for impeachment on the Republican side has to go to the Senate, and I think you have to be very careful that you have all your facts together, because if you're not, yeah. then it's going to look all like it's just political, political polarization again. We're just throwing stuff up because we hate the president. Stacey, uh, uh, Jackie makes a good point. Pelosi has got to focus not just on the impeachment, but on accomplishments mm -hmm. in the House. Uh, the, uh, and, of course, conversely, the president is going to use this impeachment drive <laughs> to uh, 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 criticize the Democrats saying, we would have passed gun safety laws. Uh, that's questionable, but that's what he's saying right now. They don't care about that. Um, border security, they don't care about that. They're only focused on impeachment. It goes both ways. Sure. Well, and that's why you see Nancy Pelosi just this morning standing with colleagues talking about all the things that they have been doing in the House. It's the Senate that's not doing anything. But I think, generally speaking, it's dangerous to, to try to say, well, this happened with Nixon or this happened with Clinton, so this is going to happen um, here because every election stands on its own. You can learn lessons. But if you look back at the Nixon timeline, what I find very fascinating, the difference then and now is while there was information coming out about the investigation prior to the election, they didn't have 24-hour news cycles, yeah. mm -hmm. and they didn't have social media. Yeah. So how much were people really paying attention to that? And, and you look at the Clinton timeline, you've got a very short timeline, and, and I would say there's not as much related to the um, impeachment, perhaps, that led to uh, Gingrich resigning. I recall some personal transgressions that were going on at the time. So I think we got to remember all the things that were going on around that time and how that might have influenced what happened. Uh, but the bottom line is, I think if you do your job, you get to keep your job. And I think that's what the Democrats are doing, both on the investigation and on uh, the domestic agenda. Greg, um, I, it, 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 you know, what I didn't point out and should have is that in 1976, maybe the final uh, act in terms of the whole Nixon impeachment was Jimmy Carter became mm -hmm. president of the United States. Yeah, and, and, and just like back then, Georgians are in the center of all this, too, in a way. <laughs> we talked about John Lewis being mm -hmm. part of that watershed moment, being the moral conscience of the, of the House that led other Democrats uh, to take that stance in, in support of impeachment. And you look on the other side of the aisle, Doug Collins, the ranking Republican in the House Judiciary Committee, will play a very prominent role defending Trump against uh, with in the, into these impeachment if, investigations. If the Democrats play out the impeachment process mm -hmm. and decide they, ha they want to move forward, it, it would presumably take place in the Judiciary Committee, uh, uh, which is why Doug Collins is ranking member. And the House Intelligence Committee is also going to play a very key role sure. looking into all this. Sure. So there's two committees where a lot of the action, there's six committees in general that are looking at it, but two committees where I think the most of the media attention will be focused on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. And, and you know, uh, Congressman Collins, who is a who has submitted his resume to be the next yeah. U.S. Senator in Georgia, he has he had I, it sounds it looked like a dozen media hits on one day alone uh, this past week. So he is all over the cable news defending Trump. All right, I want to talk more about Senate and who's applying and who's not after we take a break. But before we get to that, uh, Amy, uh, to take this to its most superficial level, okay. it did not strike me as being surprising that the first hearing on this and all this played out in the Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, just from a superficial point of view, mm -hmm. seems to be a more compelling media figure than Gerald Nadler. Nadler is a little bit more morose. He's a, you know, I just think that they're looking at optics. They can't avoid that. Do, am I saying anything that makes sense to you? I think there's something to that. Um, Schiff is also an incredibly uh, 
good questioner. Yeah. And that also really came through, for example, with the hearing the other day with uh, the acting DNI. And so I think that that's part of it. That is, again, not necessarily Nadler's strength. Um, and so I think that we have that. And I think that's one of the reasons why they have made this choice, that what they're going to do is continue six, six different committees, have various things they have jurisdiction <laughs> over, that they're going to do that. And then if there are, and then what they're going to do is send their findings to the Judiciary yeah. Committee to put it together. Stacey, we got to get a break in. <laughs> Stacey, if anybody, you know, the Democrats just, you know, come on. You know, six committees, six mm -hmm. different messages out there. I mean, that's where Democrats really risk not being able to have a consolidated message, isn't it? I agree. I mean, we, we've got to we've got to get on one page. We've got to get our talking points lined up. And six committees, six chairmen. That's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> Jackie's loving that. I, um, they they got to figure out what message it. They got to find something first. I mean, right, they got to find right. something first. We got to get to a break. When we come back, I do want to talk about the Senate uh, race uh, and talk about the various people who've applied under Governor Kemp's really interesting uh, concept of uh, opening this up for anybody who wants to submit an application and a resume. We'll do that right after this. Show me this road I follow No matter where it leads, no matter where it leads You can take me down this winding trail I follow, I follow The only thing that is predictable is the unpredictability of Washington, D.C. Is the Sunni Shia divide about to explode wide open? Neither side seems to appreciate that they're destroying the region. What are you seeing as the most important thing that has to get done right now? Developments in the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Women who say the Hollywood mogul sexually harassed. Luckily, there are a lot of women coming forward. If we don't take this moment in history, then we're letting a moment pass. Don't miss it on GPB. So, so Greg Bluestein, I feel a little bit vindicated. I've been saying on this show for several weeks, and all of you on the panel have said, oh, no, you're wrong. I've said that President Trump uh, sees Doug Collins as being far too important as a mm -hmm. defender of his in the Judiciary Committee and doesn't want him to be moving over to the United States Senate. Doug Collins has applied for that Senate job, the open seat, the Johnny Isaacson seat, and now it appears that maybe that's exactly what will happen in the impeachment process, yeah? I mean, he, he is going to play a, a key role as a Trump defender. Remember, whoever Governor Kemp appoints as U.S. senator wouldn't take office until early, early next year anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, senator Isaacson's not stepping down until the end of the year. And so presumably, you know, Congressman Collins or whoever it is... Can continue playing can continue. this role until the yeah, first... Yeah, and remember, year. you know, it's going to go over to the Senate after that, so... <laughs> Oh, yeah, the Senate will act right. as the jury. All right, you know, I keep but saying so I many, dr drop this theory. But, <laughs> but there's so many calculations involved. And really, I think it's going to come down to, um, you know, who, who Governor Kemp, whoever, whoever's on a short list will probably presumably pass the Trump test, too. You know, Trump will have influence, but he, I don't think he'll have the final say. Um, so it's going to be down to who Ke Governor mm -hmm. Kemp wants to be on the ballot with, really, in 2022 uh, as well. well. The other thing that's interesting, Jackie, is that whoever he appoints, presumably, if it gets this far will be on the, the Trump jury in the Senate. Well, if it gets that far, and I, I agree with you, actually, Bill. I, th I think Doug Collins is incredibly important for P President Trump where he is, um, and I think he's doing a fantastic job. So I, th I think, I mean, if I had to make that decision, I would say please stay there because he's doing a, a great job. I do think it's interesting that Kemp opened this up to anybody, and I think actually Republican <laughs> or Democrat. So you could be a Democrat and put your name into this process if you wanted. But there are a lot of calculations in terms of who is the right fit, who can possibly expand the base. I mean, I think there are a lot of things he has to think about. But I'm actually, I think it's fascinating that he's chosen to do it this way. We learned the other day that Tom Price has uh, thrown his uh, uh, name in the, in the hat. He, how many, served eight terms? Six terms, I think it was something like that, that. In, the, in the House. Uh, and, 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 of course, had a short-lived career as HHS secretary. I, I wonder to what extent Republicans in Georgia may... He may not get to that point, mm -hmm. but 
I wonder what his standing is with Republicans, given the scandal that erupted around his travel. I, I have no idea, quite frankly. Amy might know from polls or something else. But well, I, I mean, no he knowledge. was brought in as one of the major health policy advisors for yeah. Kemp during the transition. Yeah. So I'm not sure what that means then sort of more broadly, but at least it suggests that Kemp uh, still values his input on things and wanted him close during the transition. Yeah, but the mm -hmm. question, Stacey, is he embarrassed President Trump? Absolutely. And President and Trump is yeah. going to have a say in all of this, mm -hmm. as we've said. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, he won't, might not have the final say, as you say, but Kemp is not going to appoint someone that President Trump doesn't approve of. But uh, in my book, please, let's pick Tom Price. <laughs> Democrats would love that. Let's, let's go for it. So who, who else do we have in this uh, open seat race these days? I mean, not, 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 we have more than 450 people who have, who have applied, wow. 450. But many, many, many of them, some of them are just jokes. Some are, yeah. you know, some are people who are not going to be seriously considered. Uh, we don't have as many big names as a, a lot of people thought they would. There's, no, there's very few names from judiciary, from law enforcement, from the business sector. And I'm talking about CEOs of you know, people who, mm -hmm. who could be expected to run a $25 million operation because mm -hmm. that's likely at least the starting, the floor for what this could cost. Yeah. Um, we have Congressman Collins, as we mentioned. We have former Health Secretary uh, Tom Price. We have... Public Service Commissioner Tim Eccles. That was an interesting applicant. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we have um, <laughs> State Senator Tyler Harper. We have a former State Senator Judson Hill. We have a few, you know, people with elected experience. But we have a lot of people who are either sitting on the sidelines or have ruled themselves out. U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack, who, mm -hmm. who some people in, in, in the Kemp world wanted to see apply. He said, no, I, I like the job I have now. Um, he would have been a very interesting... Yeah, Pack is clearly loving his job. As he <laughs> He's in the middle of us. Pack has a lot of work to do, so let's, yeah, let, let's let him do his work. He's very yeah. busy. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we haven't, seen, we haven't seen too many candidates for other... Like Karen Handel, you know, that, there's a... If she were to apply, I'm sure her Republican adversaries in the 6th District would, 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 would you know, clobber her for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We haven't seen any judges, really, um, at, le at least any prominent judges. Um, so it, it, it's put, it puts a lot of potential candidates in a bind. One of the things that's been interesting to watch, Amy, is that there are people in Kemp's administration who mm -hmm. were just elected. Uh, uh, Chris Carr, the attorney general, first term uh, elected to that office. Je uh, Jeff Duncan, Mike lieutenant governor. governor. You might wonder if this open seat were happening uh, at another time after they'd served a little longer in those state jobs, whether they might go after him. I read Greg Bluestein telling me uh, in the paper that uh, Chris Carr hasn't been mounting any kind of campaign. And maybe they understand they would look awfully opportunistic if suddenly they decided to jump in and in the long run alienate Kemp, who wants him in their constitutional mm -hmm. roles here. Well, one does, I mean, what we don't know, but what would be interesting, I guess, if we were able to be a fly on the wall to find out, is what kind of conversation is there happening right now, for example, between the governor and the lieutenant governor on this, right, as to whether or not, because one might imagine that the lieutenant governor might want to go in for this seat, but at the same time, it is a little awkward. It's only, you know, they're going into uh, the second year that they've even been in office. He also doesn't know if he's going to be chosen, which I think makes that also mm -hmm. much more mm -hmm. difficult because that would be sort of personally embarrassing if he was to put it in yeah. and then wasn't chosen. Um, and so there really are these different dynamics that I think, and maybe this is a question for Greg, that I haven't seen of what is a the timeline and b the criteria that's what makes this so intriguing for a lot of these potential applicants there is no there's no deadline but he could cut it off tomorrow right and i mean i don't i think he'll probably say something before he cuts mm -hmm. it off because there's a lot of political procrastinators out there but yeah if you're jeff duncan look if you're actually if you're kemp and Jeff Duncan's been your fiercest ally. Yeah. They worked hand-in-hand hand on so yep. many different yeah. pieces of legislation. And he won't get to appoint Jeff Duncan's successor. So that has to play mm -hmm. into it, too. Well, uh, yeah. Mike, it's all, it's all well and good that Kemp has this online application process. Uh, that sounds great for the cameras. But my guess is that there are still folks talking to Kemp behind the scenes or people's people are talking to Kemp's yeah. people behind the scenes. And if Kemp wants somebody else... You may see an application come in at the last Suddenly minute. I mean, it happens with the judicial up. nominations all the time. Yeah. They'll send over a short lift to the, gov to the governor, and he's like, no, I wanted so-and-so. And then suddenly you'll see that person's name pop up on the short yeah. list. It, it yeah. happens all the time. I mean, it, but I, I say, look at who Kemp has appointed so far. 
in his in different positions. I mean, look at the Commissioner of Insurance. Look at look at the judicial appointments he's had. I think they've been fascinating and very smart. He's uh, I think drawn a lot of accolades from both Democrats and Republicans yeah. for his appointments. Yeah. And I think he really does have a, an open mind about who really is the best fit for Georgia, knowing that of course they have to run on the ticket next time with along with Purdue and you know and Trump. But I think he's you know he's been really I think fascinating with his appointments, and I'm sure he'll continue to be so. All right, before we run out of time, Stacey Evans, what about the other side of this? The Democrats. We keep hearing. Names we heard names like uh, Michael Thurmond. Uh, we uh, hear names like Jen Jordan, uh, Nakima Williams, state senator, chair of the party. Cherry but Boston. nobody's what? Cherry Boston. Cherry Boston. Boston. Yes, the uh, DA out in DeKalb County. Mm -hmm. But we haven't heard anybody who's declared at this point, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, and I don't think you. I don't think you will for a while. I think um, Democrats are being, being very smart in this. It's a it's a different kind of election. It's not a primary. It's a jungle primary. Everybody's yeah. going to run at the same time. Mm -hmm. We know from the. Um, sixth congressional district special election that um, having one Democrat uh, can be very helpful and that's our best shot to win the seat is to have one Democrat and I think that everybody's being very thoughtful. I know a lot of people are talking to each other. I think this is going to be a collaborative uh, decision-making process about who goes and then I think everybody else is going to step back. Greg, are you picking up any intelligence at all about who's ready to make the move? You're, you're as plugged in as any reporter. Not who's ready, but, they, but, but they're in Washington. They're making phone calls, yeah. as Stacey just said. Jen Jordan was in Washington yeah. just a few days ago. Yeah. So is Ed uh, Tarver, a former U.S. attorney from Augusta. He was in Washington a couple days ago. So they are making moves behind the scenes, but we haven't seen anything public yet. Um, all right. I just It strikes me you're going to have to raise so much money mm -hmm. that I don't know how long, you know, uh, Stacey says... You, you, not anytime really soon, but somebody's got to start raising money for what would be an incredibly expensive raise. They're going to have to start raising money. I mean, I would imagine that hope that probably what a lot of the candidates or potential candidates are thinking is that this is going to be a time where uh, they're going to get a lot of support from the state party and yeah. also the national party. And so that <laughs> and also if in fact the party is able to exercise some control. And this is, of course, a huge debate in political science about whether or not the parties really matter whatsoever. But if they are able to somewhat winnow the field, particularly of making it so that there's only one Democrat, right, in this jungle primary, then it also makes it a lot easier to raise money than if you're also raising mm -hmm. money, right? Because otherwise, what we think about raising money right now, but remember, nobody is raising money for a general election. People are mm -hmm. only raising money for primaries. Yeah. yeah. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. I really appreciate all of you sharing your insights, uh, your opinions on this extraordinary time we're living in in politics today, making your book all exactly the more right. relevant. Broken, what is it called again? Our, our Broken, broken America. America. <laughs> <laughs> Stacey Evans, thank you so much. Amy Steigerwalk, glad to have you with us. And Greg Bluestein, always great to have you. Um, you'll be back with us on our show on Wednesday when John Ossoff is going to be coming in. We've tried to give each of the Democratic Senate candidates who have uh, stepped up and made their campaigns official an opportunity to do some uh, to talk with us. So he'll be getting his turn, as all of the other Democrats have. Um, we've invited David Perdue. We'll wait and see at some point whether David Perdue wants to come in and talk to us. So I look forward to seeing you then. Um, I'm back at 2 o'clock tomorrow with another political rewind. And all I can say to everybody out there is um, we've just finished a big uh, fundraising drive here. Our radio pledge uh, ended just at the end of this past week. And uh, I'm told that those of you who are fans of Political Rewind have been exceptionally generous in helping support the work that we're doing here. And for that, I am more grateful than I can ever tell you. Um, we're a state agency, but as I say all the time, uh, the state money pays for infrastructure, programming, our salaries, all come from how you support us with your dollars. So just as we end the show today, thank you for everything you've done to support GPB Radio. That's it. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow at 2.